Well, good morning, and happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Johnny at the soundboard hooked me up with his headpiece and this remote, and he said, uh, all you have to do is push the top button here and watch it turn green, and you're good to go. Well, he doesn't know that I'm suffering from Dunlap's disease. It Dunlapped over. Forget the light. Is there a remote there I, I can't really see? Sometimes I still think I'm in the military. My naval base keeps getting bigger. <laughs> All right. Uh, Kevin called me yesterday afternoon and he says, uh, I don't have much of a voice. Do you think you could share uh, your testimony and work it into a Thanksgiving motif? motif? And it's what a wonderful opportunity to, to do that. And. Uh, not that my testimony means anything to you, but God does. And uh, we should all be able to have an opportunity to stand up and share a testimony as to how God has touched your life. And uh, it would be wonderful for us to do that one day. We're not, not going to do messages. You're going to be the living message of Christ in our lives. Now, because we don't have Sunday school, um, I want to start with something for the kids. Okay. Parents, you can look wherever you want, but you can look in if you would like. But kids, I, I need your attention right here, because I have a very special coloring book. I got this years and years ago for my kids, and I took it home for them to color the pictures on the pages, right? But when I got home, I was very frustrated, because I turned the pages, and guess what I saw? Nothing. The pages were blank. There were no pictures in my coloring book. How frustrating is that? But you know, this is like the Christian life. You know, when you start out in the Christian life, you don't have a clear picture. You don't have a picture in your mind as to what's really going on. I don't see clearly how I relate to God and how God relates to me and what all this thing about the church has to do with my life. Uh, It's like you draw a blank picture, like my coloring book. But you know, over time, if you will trust God, the pictures begin to form. You begin to start, start seeing that the pictures really are there. You just didn't see them. They were there all along. It's like the Christian life. The more you grow, the more you trust in God, the clearer the picture of the Christian life becomes. And in fact, the more you grow, you realize just how beautiful the Christian life is. How wonderful it all is. It's just beautiful. The Christian life becomes something wonderful and full of life. That's like the Christian life that we live in. Thank you very much. (laughs) Unlike many of you, I was not raised in a Christian home. I don't know what it's like for a family to come to church to worship God together, to pray together, to, to sing together, to study God's Word together. That was not a part of my life at all. It's not that my parents were criminals or druggies or abusers. They just didn't see any need for God in their lives. They had family. What did they need God for? 
Well, as it turned out later on in life, there were many holes, there were many gaps, many needs that they had, but they just couldn't see it. But oddly enough, they wanted to make sure my twin brother Eddie and I went to church. So they would go through all the extra trouble of getting us ready, driving us into town, dropping us off, and come back and pick us up. They would never go in. And they made sure they had said, you stay for everything. If it's Sunday school, you stay. They have fellowship, you stay. Do not leave that building until you go to the worship service. They have two worship services, you stay for all of it. We'll see you later. Now I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I'm sure that they were thinking, it's for our benefit. But I tend to suspect there was some babysitting going on. Because it happened not just on Sundays. Many opportunities, my brother and I would be dropped off places. The movies, the swimming pool, amusement parks. We'll see you later. And they happened to choose a liberal church on steroids. I mean, this was a pastor who preached the social gospel hardcore. And so if you ask me, are you a Christian? I would say, yeah. But for me, that meant I had an idea that God existed somewhere. I had a concept of God, and I didn't kill my neighbor, and I was trying to uh, fit in with society, so I'm a Christian. I had no idea that you could have a personal relationship with this God. That wasn't even on the plate. It's not something I could even consider. Just think about God, and your thoughts about God would carry you through. My twin brother and I graduated in 1967. I know. Me and Moses were tight. 1967, and about midway through the summer after we graduated, my friends were all going off to college or to work, and we were driving down the street. I was driving, and I said to my brother, Eddie, what are we going to do with our lives? We had no interest in going to college. You had to study. And we didn't want to work. That sounded too, too rough. So my brother thought for a minute, and he says, let's join the Marine Corps. And I thought, sure, why not? And I turned around, and we drove right straight to the Marine recruiting office. We were both 18. We didn't need our parents' permission for anything, and we signed on the dotted line, four years active duty. This was 1967. 1968 would be the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. We were going. I'll never forget my mom when we came home that afternoon. She was standing in the kitchen. She said, so boys, what did you do today? I said, ah, we joined the Marine Corps. And she got all panicky. She goes, uh, 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 when, when are you going? Maybe next year or two years from now? I go, nah, we got to pass some tests, and if we do, we're gone in a month. And she collapsed on the kitchen table and started crying. It was so cruel and insensitive, but it was true. July 24th, we got on a plane heading for San Diego Marine Recruit Depot boot camp. I had never met a Marine in my life. I thought Marine Corps was going to be like Boy Scouts. We were both Eagle Scouts. We thought our drill, ma- drill instructor would be like our Boy Scout leader. We'd go for hikes during the day, sit around the campfire at night, cooking schmores and telling ghost stories. None of that happened. After some traumatic experiences, we got through boot camp. 
did advanced training at Camp Pendleton, and we were both sent to uh, Memphis, Tennessee for a, a fixed-wing mechanic school. And then my brother was sent to El Toro Air Force Base, uh, Air Base in Santa, in California. And I stayed in Memphis for helicopter mechanics school. And then I went to Santa, Santa Ana, California, and my brother was sent to Vietnam. Are you writing this down? We're going to have a test after this. I'm a teacher. While I was in Santa Ana, uh, I was so bored that I joined the Marine Corps Bowling League. I was lousy at bowling. All of us were. I think we had a, an average of like 110. And, but it got us off the base, and I, we could bowl at Wonder Bowl for this discount rate right next to Disneyland. And one night when I was bowling, I happened to notice about four lanes over was this lovely young lady. Mmm. And I thought, boy, it'd be great to get to know her. And she kept coming. And after a while, I introduced myself to her. And uh, we started dating. We got engaged. And we've been married now for 42 years. <laughs> oh, stop. Come on. <laughs> and I like to tell people that I met my wife in the gutter. And then when I started to talk to her, I almost struck out. But God spared me. And when we were engaged, I received Westpac orders, West Pacific. I was going to Vietnam. And I thought, how odd. I'm a corporal in the Marine Corps, trained to fight, ready to kill, but I'm not ready to die. The Marine Corps did its job, but there was something missing. What would happen to me if I got killed? I had no assurance of everlasting life, whatever that meant. Why didn't my idea of God connect with my circumstance in life? There just didn't, it didn't seem to work together. I had some ideas floating around in my head. Why didn't they give me assurance? They didn't. And so while I was wrestling with this, I had no assurance at all. And I was going into a war zone. One of my wife's friends invited us to go to a Billy Graham crusade. It was being held at the Angels Baseball Stadium in Anaheim. We got there late, of course, and there were about 56,000 people there. The only seating available was at the far end of the first baseline, on the second tier. So we're way back there, and they had made a platform for Billy Graham to speak, and he spoke the whole night with his back to us. Which didn't matter because what he was saying resonated with my life. Just made a home run as far as my needs were. He was talking about having a personal relationship with God in Jesus Christ. I never, ever heard of such a thing. A personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Wow. And he said, in Christ you have forgiveness for all of your sins. In Christ, you have new life. In Christ, you have hope for a bright and glorious future. In Christ, you have assurance of everlasting life. And that's exactly what I needed. And I knew that's what I was missing all along. I had no relationship with God. And that's the key through Christ. And so at the end of, of the service, Billy Graham gave an invitation. If you would want to receive Christ... Come down 
and we'll pray together and you can receive Christ. And, I, and many people were going down all over and I sat there and I wanted to go. But I held back. And I was wrestling with this. And I, was going, I said to the Lord of the creation, I said, God, I want to go down and I want to have a personal relationship with you. But I want to know that this is what you want me to do. So God, right now, would you do something to show me that this is your will for my life? And at that moment, Billy Graham stopped talking. He turned around, pointed to where we were sitting, and he said, Jim, come down here right now. And he turned back around and continued to speak. I said, God, is there anything else you can do? (laughs) That was what I needed. I know there's probably a hundred gyms in that vicinity, but there was one gym wearing my shirt. And I got up immediately and I started going down. My wife got up with me. We went down together. And I put my trust in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise God. What a thanksgiving blessing that was. I was so grateful that God met my need. Gave me assurance of everlasting life. I took that to Vietnam with me. And when I was stationed there, as soon as I got settled in, it was at Marble Mountain Helicopter Air Base just out of Da Nang along the South China Sea. I went to the base chaplain. I was an itty-bitty Christian, brand new. You could still smell the wax. And I went to him. I introduced myself, and I said, I went forward to the Billy Graham crusade just before I came here. I don't know anything, but I want to grow in my relationship with God. Please, please, would you disciple me? And he said, no. He said, that's not my job description. You want to be discipled, you come to uh, chapel, other chaplain services on Sundays. Otherwise, I have no need for this. No time. I was so frustrated. I walked out thinking, I am never, ever going to his chapel services. And I kept that promise. The problem was, I had no other opportunity, avenue for growth. You couldn't have any friends in Vietnam. And if I did, none of them would have been Christians. There was no Navigators, Campus Crusade, no Christian organization whatsoever. It seems that whatever happened in that baseball stadium stayed there. It went no further. In the place where I needed it most, I had no opportunity to grow. It was like it was a brick wall. And while I was there, I was first assigned to HMH 363. It was a large uh, CH-53 helicopters. Transport helicopters, we moved troops and equipment all over the place. Uh, we were there for a couple months. I got my air crew wings, which was kind of cool, and a few air medals. And I thought, wow, uh, it's kind of dangerous. This is just a su- support squadron. And then the word came down that we were rotating. The entire squadron was leaving Vietnam. We were going to rotate to Irwakuni, Japan. Everybody was going, yoo I get to leave. I don't need assurance. Whatever happened at that baseball stadium, I guess I really didn't need it after all because I'm not going to stay here. And when the orders came down, there was one person that had to stay behind. It just so happens that before I went to California, in my squadron in California at Santa Ana, we were working on another type of helicopter. It was a Huey. We worked on it long enough for me to get a secondary MOS, and they needed helico- uh, Huey mechanics desperately in a squadron right over the flight, 
uh, flight bay, uh, the landing strip. So I got bumped. And now I know I'm not leaving. I'm staying for the full duration. What happened to that assurance? I can't leave. And I went over across the flight line with my duffel bag all by myself, and I reported to the commanding officer. And this was now HML 167. This is not a support squadron. This is a gunship squadron. We didn't carry troops. We carried machine guns and rockets. And we existed for combat. And it was like I went from the frying pan into the fire. When I was on the ground, I was in maintenance control. When I was flying, I was a machine gunner in helicopter gunships. It wasn't long before I encountered violence and death. I watched helicopters fly into each other, kill everybody. I had to personally identify piles of bodies on certain missions. I know the sheer terror of being in gunfights. And I know the constant fear of flying so far into enemy territory if you were shot down and ever managed to survive, you were on your own. And that begins to take a toll on your prospects of survival. It's unavoidable. I had doubts about my, my hope and assurance when I was in the other squadron and now when I was in this one. And after flying several of these missions, I sensed my assurance, if it was there at all, was beginning to die. One of the responsibilities I had in maintenance control was to keep track of all the hel- mechanical status of all the helicopters in the squadron. Whenever a, a helicopter was shot down, it was my job to erase that helicopter from the board. So one, re- w- one week I'd erase one. Maybe a week I wouldn't erase any. Another w- week I'd erase two or three. And after a few months of this, I said, guys, I just erased a helicopter. They go, so what? He said, you don't understand. This is the 18th helicopter. We have 36 helicopters in our squadron. That's a 50-50 chance of survival. And if you are assigned to the crazier missions, which I was, the odds are you're not going to be on the winning side of that 50. And I began to plummet into this thing called despair. And there's another abyss below that called depression and for a while my wife kept me from going over that cliff she wrote me letters hundreds and hundreds of letters sometimes two or three letters a day word got around in the squadron about all the letters i would get and they would ask one question did herring get mail because if i didn't get mail no one got mail she was the barometer for whether or not the mail service was working And sometimes when the mail service was down for two or three days, the mailman would come right to the door of our little shop in this big squad bay, and he'd go, herring, 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 herring. And then he'd walk away. There are about three guys in the shop, and there's about six letters on the, ground, on the floor. It's kind of embarrassing for the, the other guys, but I thought it was great. I went to uh, Australia for R&R for a little over a week, and when I came back, the master sergeant in charge of the, the shop thought it would be fun to put my letters on the bottom of the flight board for everyone to see. And what turned out to be a fun idea turned out to be agonizing for everyone in the squadron. 
Because when I got back, the first thing he says, you got to come over here. Get over here right away. He says, look at the flight board. The entire flight board was covered with all these letters from my wife. Too deep. And some of these guys hadn't gotten a single letter from their wives. And they were writing their wives and saying, how come you're not writing to, it, to me? And they'd get a letter back, oh, well, it must be the mail service. And they said, ah, uh-uh, ah, it's not. We got this guy named Herring. <laughs> we know when it's up. We know when it's down. Would you please write? So for a while, that helped. But it was like a, a temporary fix. You'd read the letter, and you'd be up, and then you would be down. And even the letters would remind me of what could have been. Because at that time, I had given up hope, and I knew I wasn't going to survive. Here I had found this wonderful woman, so devoted and dedicated, and I knew in my heart it was never going to be. Sooner or later, I was going to die. And what could have been would never be. And when you get down like that, and you lose hope and you lose assurance, I became fatalistic. I just didn't care. Didn't matter what mission I flew. You don't even bother protecting yourselves. We wore these uh, lead-lined bullet bouncers. I stopped wearing those. I usually sat on them because that's where your bullet's going to come up from sometimes. I stopped even cleaning myself. I look back at the first few months of being in Vietnam, I thought, how foolish to bother to take care of yourself when you're going to die. It doesn't matter. I used to have my clothes cleaned. <laughs> I didn't do that anymore. I never cl- changed the sheets uh, on the linens on my little rack. I stopped. I only did what was necessary to keep from getting in trouble, but I never brushed my teeth anymore. I didn't do anything like that because I was going to die. And I remember on one medevac mission, I came back. It was a monsoon season. I was soaking wet. I had missed chow again. And I walked into my hooch. That's our hut where we lived. And I entered the cubicle, and I looked down at my rack, and I saw my body etched in the sheets. See my arms and my legs, my torso and my head. And I thought, That's what's become of me. I am nothing but a dirty, filthy stain at the end of the world. I'm going to die, and I'm utterly and completely alone in this world. And then it happens. It's as though I stuck my finger in an electric socket. This ecstatic, sensation flowed completely over my body. I was filled with a peace that transcends any understanding that I have ever experienced. And I was struck with the utter joy I was not alone. That the God who met me in Anaheim had followed me to Vietnam. And he was present right then and there at the end of the world. He was in my life. I could experience his peace in me. It was so powerful that long after the sensation left, the conviction of peace 
and assurance remained. So much so that it reignited my desire to know him more. And so I went to a sergeant and I said, you know, the chaplain isn't going to disciple me. I don't care. I'm going to learn about Jesus. There's a library on this base. And I'm going to that library and I'm going to find a book about Jesus and I'm going to read about him and I'm going to learn about this Jesus who has saved me and I'm going to grow in my relationship with God. But I don't know where the library is. (laughs) Could you help me? And so the two of us headed out and we were looking all over for this library that was supposed to be on the base. And we found it. The little Quonset hut. We walked in. I told him, I said, there's a book there about Jesus and I'm going to get it and I'm going to learn about Christ. I walked in. There was books on the shelves and there was a table. There was one book on the center of that table. And I picked it up and I said, yep, that's the one. And here it is. The History of Jesus Christ by R.L. Bruckberger. Last time it was checked out, October 23, 1969. If the Vietnamese want it, they can come get it. (laughs) But I took it back to my hooch and I started reading. And I started praying. And I started growing. And just before I left Vietnam, I got on my knees in that dirty little place. And I said to God, God, I don't know how in the world you can use a dumb Marine like me. I have no Christian background. I hardly know anything about your word, but I dedicate my life to you. Please use me. I want to serve you. And from Vietnam, the adventure continued. Went to college. Went on staff with Campus Crusade, was ordained, has pastored churches. I've been a teacher now for 20 years at Riverside. It has not been a perfect run. I have made decisions that have caused suffering and grief. But I know from that moment in that hooch, I was never, ever going to be alone again. I had the assurance that God was with me. And he's been with me every day of my Christian life. It would have been nice if someone came to me to share this passage. But that chaplain would have taken the time to disciple me, and in my circumstance, direct me to the promise of God's Word. For example, in Hebrews 13, verse 5, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. It would have saved me a lot of grief, a lot of anxious moments if I were discipled and if someone could share the sheer promises of God's word with me. But God was gracious. He would not leave, leave me to feelings of despair and depression. He found ways for me to get through so that I can arrive on the sure promises of his word. I don't know where you are in this journey. Maybe right now you have an idea of God. A concept of God. And you're shaping Him and molding Him to fit as best you can your circumstances in life. But that would only work if you have a way to connect this concept with life. And that's only possible through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And for those of us who are Christians, that continues to be the case. Life to life. God's life in ours. Continuing to cause us to grow in our relationship with Him. The greatest gift that I know of that corresponds to Thanksgiving or any time is not just that I have a devoted wife who kept me going at many times when I felt I could not, or a congregation of believers like this where we can come and find encouragement to pray together, to admonish one another, to be discipled, to be instructed in God's Word. But the greatest gift of all is that we have a God who desires to have a relationship with us at all. And it has made it possible for that to happen. That's the greatest Thanksgiving gift I am so grateful and thankful for that we have the prospect of having an eternal, personal relationship with the Lord God who created us and has saved us. Let us pray.